It is uh, August 12th, 2015. Our message this evening is called Four Letter Words. So um, let's start with one of the first four letter words that we want to cover with you tonight. Somebody read Genesis 2. Oh, we can't do that. This is not foundations. Let's put Genesis 2.15 on the board and, uh, and I'll read it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. When you think of the Garden of Eden, you very well be amazed here with my art. This, this, will, uh, this you'll think is very special, right? You very well may think immediately of a tree. Tree of life, right? Isn't that amazing? Looks like the tree of life, doesn't it? What's wrong? Y'all not going to talk to me tonight? How good was life in the garden? Look, I don't know how long it happened. We don't know how old Adam was when he was made. We don't know how long he was there before they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What we know is that God made man and he took him and he put him in a garden. God's always been taking you from somewhere to somewhere. That's the way that he works. It's what he does. I promise while you sit here, the Lord is taking you from somewhere to somewhere. And it is always because he wants you to work. The king of kings has work for you to do. Ephesians 2 teaches us that he prepared good works in advance for you to do. If you don't know why you're on the planet, you're going to find out. Because the king of kings has things that he designed For you to do. How much time passed prior to eating from that tree? So in this direction, wow, that marker's not going to work. It's uh, dead. In this direction, if we're thinking of a timeline, can y'all see that? This is what some theologians would call alpha eternity. Alpha meaning a beginning point. And we don't know when it began. It just was. I'll explain that in a minute. As we move forward in time, coming this direction, let's go to Revelation 22, the first two verses. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of... The tree of... When we think of time... In this direction, we also have a beautiful tree. And how long we're there? Wow, that tree's lopsided. It had a hurricane. How long we're there? In what some theologians would call omega eternity? We don't know. That's an interesting concept. Do you remember in the song um, Amazing Grace? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we've first begun. How long is an eternity? <laughs> well, it's, it's an eternity. And the thing that is startling about the Bible when you think about it is that God himself starts the story with an eternity before this tree and an eternity after the last tree. The Bible is largely the story between those two trees. Can we say it's difficult sometimes? Uh, Let me read you something. Actually, we'll put them on the screen. Put 1 Corinthians 2.7 on the screen. Y'all let me know when it's there. Somebody say there. 
another one. There we go. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2.7. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. What's that phrase say? You mean there was a point at which time began. There is no reason to measure eternity. It's limitless. And if you're trying to measure it, by what standard would you measure it? Uh, Why don't we look at this one then? Go to uh, Proverbs 8.23. Somebody say there when it's there. I still didn't get enough. I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before what? Are these familiar scriptures? Yes, but we never thought about what they meant. There is a point in time before time began. Uh, We see that wisdom was appointed from eternity. What eternity? I would say it's alpha eternity. God's wisdom existed before time as we know it began. How about this one? John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Are you beginning to get a picture? Lots of things happen in Alpha Eternity. Uh, how about this one? 1 Peter 1.20. We'll work them out on the keyboard back there. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Sounds like an awful lot happened before the creation of the world, doesn't it? Uh, let's take another one. 2 Timothy 1.9. Who, was sa- who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Usually, if you can establish something with three scriptures, we would say it's theologically sound. It turns out that we can do this literally all day, but the last one that I'm going to give you today is Titus 1-2. And when you look at Titus 1-2, consider this. A faith and a knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. We have many things that happen in the Bible before the beginning of time. And we have a place in the Bible in Revelation 22 where we have a garden setting again, a tree again, the people of God living for an eternity again, and time ceases then to have a purpose. When we're talking about time, can y'all read that? Is that clear? A four-letter word. Understand time has a very specific purpose in the Bible. And there is nothing that God is more fascinated with or comes through in the Scripture more than the number seven. How many days were in the first week? How many feasts of Israel are there? How many times did they march around Jericho? How many spirits of God are there? How many churches in the book of Revelation? On a menorah, how many candle stands are there? We can do this all day and all night, seven, 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 and there is a reason for it. Let's go to Genesis in the first chapter. When we're talking about time, it's important to know that God instituted it for a reason. Many things happened before it was instituted. 
I want to read you just the first couple verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, or had become, or was becoming, or became. All of those are possible. Now the earth was, formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. When you look at a 24-hour time period, a complete revolution of the earth, we call those days. And the Bible describes the very first day. But there are things that happen prior to the first day. Hence all of those scriptures we just shared with you. Many things that were destined. Wisdom exists. In fact, if you look at John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there prior to the Lord creating the heavens and the earth, prior to the first day. Now, I'm not trying to bend your mind. I hope that these are concepts that you're fairly familiar with. The question then becomes, why institute time? If Revelation 13 says the Lamb was slain before the beginning of time or since the beginning of time, why institute time at all? Have you ever spent your life trying to save time? Make more time? Have any of you been successful in that? Yeah? Have you even been successful in managing your time? You know, it was my observation when I worked for people that didn't know what else to say. They talked to me about time management. Because this is, it's like preaching about pride in church. When will that never, uh, when, when will that cease to have an application, Right? Time is one of those things that is solely, completely, absolutely out of your control. It moves on with you. It moves on without you. It was meant to be a standard to measure something by. Does that make sense? Look at the fourth day. When you get to the fourth day, which, by the way, picks up in verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, And let them serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. What is the purpose of the lights that are in the sky? They're supposed to mark days, seasons, and years. They mark the time period in which the earth is revolving, the earth is spinning around the sun, in which the solar system is in motion, in which the universe is in motion, They are marking something, measuring something. And the first unit that God introduced was a seven. Turn with me to Leviticus 23. Say there when you were there. Oh, I'm glad a few of you went. Are you all mad at me tonight? What's going on? It's quiet in the house of God. Hey, I came all the way from Romania to be here with you. They'd have been happy if I stayed. And I love it there, but you're my church. And I came back to teach you something. Are you going to give me all of your heart, all your attention? Or are we going to sit and endure a service? Huh? You want us to preach? Okay, then we'll preach. When you think of these things, in Leviticus 23, you can see in verse 4, we've got a Passover. In verse 9, we have first fruits. I want to make a suggestion for you. Time was put there to measure something. I'm going to put Hebrew names here. The very first feast that we're given is Pesach. 
The second feast that we're given is unleavened bread. I said I was going to write the Hebrew. I'll tell you the Hebrew. For unleavened bread, you can put hag, ha, matzah, or matzot. Unleavened bread. After unleavened bread comes first fruits. After first fruits comes, what's wrong? Shavuot, Pentecost. Y'all are quiet. Y'all not know the feast or are you just waiting on me? Well, you're going to know the feast before it's over. Is that fair enough? After the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or Pentecost, we have Rosh Hashanah. In other words, trumpets. After the Feast of Trumpets, we have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. After Yom Kippur, we have Sukkot, which people call tabernacles. We have a schedule that's laid out here. When we're thinking of this schedule, is it interesting that God himself, who seems to deal in sevens, when he instituted time, said, it is to mark days, seasons, and years. And then one of the ways that you would measure time if you were an Israeli is you would measure it by the feast that you were in. How many of you, when Thanksgiving comes, can't wait until it's Christmas? None of you? Okay, Nick, I'll speak to those with beards here. How about that? Look, most of the time, how many of you are in school or a teacher or a student in school in here? Don't tell me that you don't look forward to the next holiday, right? (laughs) Holiday is an English word that came from holy day. The original intent was these were days that we worship God. Now they're just days that you don't go to work. I mean, you celebrate working on Labor Day by not working. We've twisted these all up. But in the biblical cycle, they were given to teach us something, to teach the world something. Time was instituted so that you would know something about God's nature. Pasak or Passover, was the time period in which all God's people were under death. Y'all recognize that? Am I telling the truth or not? Okay. All God's people were under death. The angel of God was going to pass over and kill all the firstborn that did not have the blood of the lamb on the family doorpost. So Passover symbolized the people of God being under death and delivered from death. This is kind of where our Christian walk starts, if you will. It's where the walk of the faithful starts. When you're born again, and like John 5 says, you cross from death into life. How many of you have crossed from death into life? I don't believe you. How many of you have crossed from death to life? Look, if the paramedics show up here, are they going to haul three or four of you out before they find the dead person? (laughs) Have you passed from death to life? If you were just let go from the electric chair, if you just got out of your death sentence, would you be like, amen, brother? Is that, have you really experienced the life of God? Because I'm not going to lie, tonight during worship, you didn't sound like it, okay? So what happens with the very first thing? The first thing worth marking in time is when you pass from death to life. This has to do with, with salvation. The very next feast incidentally starts at the exact same time that salvation or Pesach starts. 
So on the 14th of Nisan, the first month of the Jewish year, at least the religious calendar, on the 14th of Nisan, a lamb would be slaughtered. When it was slaughtered, you began Passover. Passover began and ended with the slaughtering of the lamb, and unleavened bread picked up in that exact same moment. Unleavened bread in Jewish society is that a father would take a menorah, a sevenfold candle, and he would search his house with his family uh, on their hands and knees looking for any bits of leaven that were in the house, any bit of contaminant that had the ability to affect change, a catalyst, if you will. It was so important to teach this lesson to the children that it was not uncommon for a mother to sprinkle breadcrumbs throughout the house so that they would have examples to show the children. This is also why we keep our house dirty. It's just so that we have an example to show the children. This was so ingrained in society. How many of you have experienced what you call a spring cleaning? This idea came from the Jewish people as far back as 14 or 1500 B.C. And the idea was that in the spring, the sun roughly correlates to our March-April time, that you would go through your house. But it was not really about your house. It was about the sevenfold spirit of God, the Ruach HaKodesh, searching every corner with the leader of the household, looking for any contaminant that didn't belong in a house that had passed from death to life. If you want to know what unleavened bread is about, it's really about sanctification. It's about that process in which a believer who has passed from death to life now goes through every area of their life looking for things that are unbecoming of the people of God. As you move forward through the feast, on the Sabbath after unleavened bread, usually around the 17th of Nisan, something else would happen. It was not always the 17th of Nisan. It depended on what day of the week this fell. But on the first Sabbath after unleavened bread, you would go out to your field and you would take produce from the field, uh, whatever was growing out of the ground, in this case, barley. And you would find the finest example of what was growing and you would tie a red or scarlet sash around it and you would bring it to the temple and offer it to God. It was a way of saying, hey, look, what's growing out there in the field, this represents. And I want to bring you the first part the best part. And it's a promise that the rest of the harvest is coming in and it belongs to you, Lord. It turns out that this is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead on, but first fruits really represents an offering that you're bringing the Lord. It's the first fruits of your life. What begins to happen after salvation and sanctification is you begin to do the work of the Lord. You have something then to say, look, Lord, My faith has produced obedience and your kingdom is advancing because of it. You know what's amazing is how many people have stagnated in time. They've stopped on the very first of the feast. They've said, we're saved and that's all I care about. Well, the problem is time doesn't stop. You're supposed to grow. You're supposed to mature. You're supposed to move forward. How are you in your walk? Have you stagnated? Did you get discouraged somewhere along the way and you just thought, well, this is far enough? Most of theology today is aimed at one thing and one thing only. 
making you feel good right where you're at. Does anybody in here have a watch on? Look at your watch. Is it moving or is it standing still? You can sit still, but time will not sit still. God has a redemptive plan that he is measuring progress through. He wants you to be able to look at the season. He wants you to be able to look at the year. He wants you to be able to look at time and have a reference point for how you were doing. And so these feasts repeated over and over and over. In the third month of the year, it's the fourth feast, but the third month of the year, you came to Pentecost or Shavuot. This was a time period of actual harvest. The first fruit had already come in, and now it's time to go get the whole field. Interestingly enough, it was on this day that God baptized his people in the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the charismatic and Pentecostal community, it's very common to think that the baptism in the Holy Ghost is so that you can speak in other tongues, or so that you can prophesy, or so that you can have faith for miracles. It's actually so that you can bring in the harvest. It turns out that no amount of faith and obedience in a person, no amount of trust and obedience in a person would yield the harvest that God wanted. God wants something of you that is divine in nature. He wants something that is beyond immeasurably more than you could ask for or imagine, and it will take His Spirit inside of you to be able to accomplish it. This is why so many Bible stories have a little guy whipping a big guy, have a small nation taking on all the nations. It's why the Bible is full of stories like a man splitting the sea or a man calling down fire or water from the heavens and being answered. It's conveying the message that to bring in the harvest, it will take a supernatural endowment. Shavuot is about a divine endowment. Now, when you're thinking about that, the very first Pentecost, I know you think it happened in the first century, but it didn't. It was the third month that Israel came out of Egypt that they got to Mount Sinai. And the first divine endowment that they received as a nation was the Torah of God, the law of God. A whole nation heard his voice in a single day. They heard the divine speak. If you've thought of the Torah as a bad thing, you really are, are mistaken. You're the product of years of bad theology. The Torah is God's direction that shows us the right way to live. In fact, how many of us would be blessed if instead of the Easter bunny, a fat guy in a red suit, and things like the tooth fairy, we were learning these things since we were children. Uh, these were meant to teach us that divine endowment would happen in the third month. The fifth feast, Rosh Hashanah, would happen in the seventh month of the year, the month of Tishri. It's the month, um, it's the seventh month. We go from the third month through the fourth with nothing happening, through the fifth with nothing happening, through the sixth with nothing happening. How many of you in your academic year hate that time period where you have no holidays? You can't wait till you're getting close to semester break because you know if you can live through Thanksgiving, then you only have a few weeks back in school before you hit Christmas. And then only a little bit of time before New Year's. And you look forward to those feasts. This gap in time between the fourth and the fifth feast, they did something. They created an anticipation. They created a desire for the next feast. 
Rosh Hashanah means head of the year. But it goes down that to mark the head of the year, they blew trumpets. This was the get ready time. And it's the get ready because something is about to happen. If you had been waiting in utter silence through the fourth month, the fifth month, the sixth month, and now the seventh month has come, and you're waiting for a trumpet to sound, it was announcing something. Time's moving forward, and we're nearing the end. The fifth feast was quite, quite uh, literally an announcement that the culmination of all of time was at hand. What we've been working for, what we've been aiming for, it's all about to happen. How many of you like it when we finish a project? Anybody got one that's been going on way too long? Got one that's unfinished? You know, every time you see it, it's a testament to your unfaithfulness. (laughs) What the Feast of Trumpets announced was that Yom Kippur atonement was coming. And when atonement came, the whole nation of Israel was right in a single day. Oh, man. You know what we're really fighting for in worship today? To get everybody in the house right. And it turns out that it's completely unacceptable to us and completely unacceptable to God and should be completely unacceptable to you to have even one of us not right with God. I mean, how many of you could care less if somebody else in this room is not doing well with God? Because if that's your heart, you probably have not been born again. But when you're born again and you have God's desires working in you, when you have His Spirit working in you, you want the house of God to be right and you want to bring as much of that wheat into the barn as you can possibly bring in by the Holy Ghost. Amen? Amen. When you make you the center of church life, when you make the object of Christianity your happiness, you miss out on all that Christianity is supposed to be. It was never supposed to be about our happiness, at least not alone. In fact, the reason that you were brought from death to life, the reason that you searched your house through sanctification to get it right and began bringing an offering of obedience to the Lord and received a divine endowment from the Lord was that you could sound a trumpet to the rest of the world. It's time to get ready because atonement will come. Is your life blowing a trumpet? You only have so much time. Yeah? Are you running out of it? How many of you know on what day you'll die? Anybody get that email? Anybody get that memo? I I have some relatives that have been promising that this was the last year they were alive for my entire life. It's how they get people to come visit them, right? It's the last time you could see me. You you better come. I say, wait, man, you made that promise last year. (laughs) You know? It turns out that it's not in our hands. Not at all. Time is something completely outside of your control. And yet, it's put there so that you have a reference point to see how you're doing in your walk and a constant reminder that creates a sense of urgency. How would you feel if every person in this room was in the best place they could possibly be with God? How good would that be? If there was no unforgiveness, if there was absolutely no hurt feelings, What if everybody in here was completely right with God and you knew it? How good would that feel? A whole nation got that in a single day on uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Do you know what they did after that? The seventh feast was a celebration 
where Israel, who was now completely right with God, every single Israelite, celebrated the salvation of the world. They did it by sacrificing 70 bulls, one for every nation that existed at the time that the feast was instituted. They did it as a way of saying, we've received something, we're right, and if God can do it for us, He will do it for the whole world. In this, you can see the plan of God for every human being. God wants you to be saved. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants your life to produce an offering, not a tithe in an offering box, an offering, something that was prompted by faith that you did in obedience that furthered the plan of God. He wants you to be divinely empowered by God's Spirit. He wants your life to tell a message to the rest of the world. Get ready. Atonement for the world is at hand. And he wants the entire world to get the message. Time is an important thing. You know what is another four-letter word? Love. My wife spells love, T-I-M-E. It turns out the more time I spend with her, the more she feels loved. The less time I spend with her, sometimes the less she feels loved. I know that your wife is different. Know that nobody in here has that feeling. How many of you, when you spend more time with God, you feel his love more? Time has all kinds of uses. And it was put there for our benefit. He wanted you to know the day, the season, and the year. He wanted you to be able to assess where you were at in the walk. You want to hear something else really fun? Let's read Leviticus 23, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feast, the appointed feast of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. That word sacred assembly is mikra. If you go to a wedding rehearsal in Israel, it's called a mikra. It's sacred, yes, but it foreshadows a more important event that happens tomorrow. You actually could call it a rehearsal. The word mikra could be rehearsal. These feasts repeated seven feasts in seven months, and they did it every year. In fact, they go on to this day, speaking a message over and over and over for the whole world to hear. How many of you in here have been born again? Why not just one of you? And if we had one of your testimonies, why is that not enough? God does this process over and over and over. And as many as would come to him, because he wants the whole world to know, it's a repeating story. In fact, have you ever sat down to share testimonies with someone and you found out how much you have in common? No, none of you have. Do you all not share your testimony? What's wrong with you people? You know why we have it in common? We all start in death. And we all have to move to life. This process is the same in every human being. In fact, we like to argue about who was more dead sometimes, right? I mean, you're either dead or you're not dead. Yeah? You can't get partially pregnant and you can't be partially dead or mostly dead unless you're Billy Crystal in that silly movie, Princess Bride. The thing is, saints is God loves us enough that in time He causes this to repeat over and over and over. I'd like to add one perspective before we move to our next scripture. 
In Alpha Eternity, it was pretty good, yeah? How long were they in the garden? I have no idea. At least long enough for Adam to name all of those animals, right? I have no idea. How long will we be in Revelation 22 in the garden with the river of life running through it and the trees for the healing of the nations? Anybody, anybody get a calendar date for that? No? So it's really the time between these trees that is a struggle. And we know it's a period of seven. How many weeks have you been through in your life? I mean, a week's a relatively short time period when you think about your life, isn't it? How short will your life be when we think about Alpha and Omega eternity? That what we do now, what we do here, it's urgent. It matters. In fact, there is a story in the Bible where time moved backwards for the man Hezekiah as Isaiah uh, prophesied to him. But when you think about this, there is only one time in all of the Bible in which time stood still. Turn with me to Joshua 10. Are you all still awake? Have I bored you to death? Can I erase this? Would that be all right? Okay. In Joshua 10, we'll do it over here. We have a story that most people remember. It has to do with Joshua at Gibeon and a battle that was fought. I'd like to talk to you about this today as it relates to your life and what I think is happening here. It hit me when I was in Romania. I taught it while we were in Romania, and uh, they were blessed by it, but I actually think it has more to do with our congregation today. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it. Adonai Zedek means God of lightning. That's an interesting thing, huh? And he heard that Joshua had destroyed I. You know, I want you to know that when you are busy doing God's work, when you are taking on impossible tasks and seeing victory, the satanic world begins to take note of you. Did you have a tough week? Have you ever wondered why? You may have had a tough week because you've become dangerous to the enemy. Perhaps those who are not having a tough week have simply made a treaty with him. What kind of condition was Joshua in when he took on I? Does anybody remember? Well, at Jericho, it was impossible. The river was at flood stage, the Jordan, and he crossed it even though it was at flood stage. And they took on Jericho by marching around it seven times in seven days, and on the seventh day, seven times. Almost as if God wanted you to know something about time. But when they got to I, a kingdom that they could defeat because it was smaller than Jericho, that they should have defeated, do you remember what happened? Sin compromised the camp. They had to go search clan by clan until they got to Achan's tent. They had to purify sin from among them, and then they won at I. If you're in a struggle, and you've been struggling with sin, and you think that your life is over because you messed up, I want you to understand, one event does not define you in time. What defines you is what you do with the rest of the time that you're given. Time is coming whether you want it to or not. What are you going to do with what you've been given? Are you going to sit and lick your wounds? Are you going to cry about what you've done or what's been done to you? Are you going to get up and do something with the time that you have? Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. 
He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters. What an interesting thing. We have a story then about Joshua, who is marching right out of sin and going into battle. We have a story about Joshua, who is about to go into battle to protect people who themselves were pretty good fighters, but had deceived Joshua into making a treaty. Do you all remember that? How the Gibeonites came with old bread and old clothes, and they entered into a covenant through deception. Isn't it funny that every time you go into battle, the things the enemy reminds you of are your past sins and all the reasons that you should have no confidence? Do you think maybe this is why the New Testament says in the book of Hebrews, do not throw away your confidence? I'm I'm just going to go out there on a limb for you and say Facebook, if it were read before the King of Kings, may be the biggest indictment against your faith in the world. When you write about all of your failures for the world to see, and you talk about all the things that you're scared of, and you put them out there on the digital media for the whole world to see, this is not an expression of faith. It's probably not the best use of your time. Yeah? Our church could clean that up a little bit. I'm pretty close to unfriending some of you because of the uh, stuff that you put on Facebook. You know what I try to fill my time with? Stories of victory, stories of faith, stories of heroism. Are there enough difficult things going on in the world that we don't need to focus on uh, how sad you were when you got out of bed today? Yeah? In the name of Jesus, we the people of God, we're supposed to be sounding a trumpet for the whole world. You think you have a Facebook ministry? Look back over your Facebook over the last year and see what you've posted on it and ask if it would rival the Apostle Paul or not. And if it wouldn't, then perhaps you should find a new ministry. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city, like one of the royal cities. It was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoham. Isn't that a great name? King of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, Debir, king of Eglon, come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. You made yourself dangerous the moment that you got into covenant with Joshua. The moment that you decided you wanted to be aligned with the people of God, you made yourself an enemy of our enemy. So, of course, life is difficult. And it's supposed to be. If it weren't, you wouldn't need Joshua to come rescue you. If it weren't, you wouldn't make good use of your time. How many of you do better with a deadline than with no deadline? How many of you wait till the last minute to get your work done? Because when you got all the time in the world, it's just not that important. The thing is, you don't know how much time you have. Our king has built in a system to create urgency. Do you know how you can say for 2,000 years the time is short? You can say for 2,000 years the time is short because we've already been through Passover. We've already been through unleavened bread. We've already been through first fruits. We've already experienced Pentecost. From Pentecost, we are waiting for a trumpet to blow. If you only have five, six, and seven feasts left, only three of seven, time is short. You're over the halfway point. 
no matter how long it is. Does that make sense to you? When we're looking at this, the enemy was looking to build a consensus. He wants to gang up with five kings on one kingdom and those that have made a treaty with it. This is why it feels like the whole world is against you sometimes. Verse 5. Then the, ki- the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. Did you ever read that Herod and Pilate had never been good friends, but after they crucified Jesus, they were friends from that day forward? Sometimes the only thing people can unite in is their hatred of you. Sometimes the only thing that people can unite in is negativity over someone else. But that's not a very good use of our time. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. Do you know how you say save us when you're saying it uh, urgently in Hebrew? Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us. Save us right now. Because the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army. Somebody say entire army. Including all the best fighting men. Let's break this down for a minute. He marched up with his entire army. Say entire army. And the best fighting men. You're talking about putting the positive spin on things. He marched up with his best fighting men and all of those people. He brought them all to battle. If we have a difficult task in the church, what you would like to do are take those that you think are best prepared for it. But Joshua took every single man and the best fighting men. The body of Christ has no part that is expendable. The body of Christ has not one person in it that should not go to battle. Joshua took the entire group and his best fighting men. Why didn't he just say the entire group? Because he wanted you to know through divine inspiration, just like we know right now, that he took the very best ones and he also took the weak, the stragglers, those that just couldn't get it right to save their life. Stronger weak, time is marching on. The enemy is facing you daily. Stronger weak, prepared or unprepared, that is our situation. The question is, are you being prepared in these events? Are you just sitting back and letting time pass you by? See, this is a church of preparation. This is a church of sending. This is a church where we believe that your ministry is a glory to Christ. And our job is to prepare you for it. We're not just looking for the strongest. We're looking for the entire army. Because we believe that the weakest person in here, the one most committed to their sinful position, if they will repent, they have a place in the army just like every other person and they will only get stronger. Are you stuck in your position? Maybe you need to get in a fight. Maybe you need to get into the battle. Maybe you need to get out there with some of the strong instead of sitting back and criticizing them. Maybe this is your day 
to answer the call. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. You know, God could have done it with just Joshua. He could have done it with any one faithful person, but he wanted every person there to experience victory. Are you experiencing victory? You know, I am not content to have an amazing, wonderful life without you. I'm not. I, I want with all of my heart for you to know what it is to see the heavens and the earth kiss in the streets. I want you with all of my heart to experience the, the depth of love that I feel in the presence of God. How are you using your time? You may only get so much of it. Does your time spell love to God? Or does your time spell love of self? So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with the entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. After an all night. Somebody say all night. night. Come on, Lionel Richie. Somebody say all night. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Well, yeah, he took them by surprise. You know why? Because what the enemy expects of you is for you to do what's easiest. What he expects of you is for you to do what's most expedient. What he expects of you is for you to act like you do most of the time. With the next days that you have, the next seasons that you have, and the next years you have, What would an all-night march look like for you? What can you do that says, you know what? I'm going to sneak up on the enemy because he's going to expect me to rest tonight. But tonight, I'm going all out in prayer. He's going to expect me to sit back and bandage my knee that hurts. But instead, I'm going to put that foot on that side of his face. What can you do that would surprise the enemy? Because you know what he expects you to do? Sit back and whine and wait for somebody else to do it. Do you know why he expects that? That's what most people do. Oh, in the annals of the kings of Israel, in the annals of the kingdom of God, what will be recorded? Will Jesus be astonished with your faith? Will you truly have surprised the enemy or will you act like ordinary men that never experienced a divine endowment? Maybe you didn't get the divine endowment. It turns out that the apostles throughout the book of Acts ran into believer after believer. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they hadn't. Are you not overcoming because you've not drank deeply enough of the Spirit? I believe that if you get full of the Holy Ghost, you will do things that surprise the enemy and astonish your God. John 15 says we will do even greater things than these. Anybody experience any of the greater things in here? Because we're supposed to. You only have so much time. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon, and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. 
As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Haran to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky. Somebody say, the Lord doesn't need my help. He demands it. God could have wiped them out with a flick of his finger, but he did not hurl a single hailstone till his entire army was on the field. It does not depend upon your proficiency. It depends upon your willingness. When you show up, He shows up. When you show up, He shows up. When He directs you and you say, yes, sir, then He rides in on the throne that is your life and He will get it done. But if we sit at home and say we can't do it, then He does not do it. He has limited Himself to the church which 1 Timothy 3 says is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Friends, that's an awesome responsibility. You know, you can waste time when you have nothing important to do. But when you are God's agency on the earth, time becomes a very important thing. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Can we say, why bring a sword? No, God wanted them to show faith in their actions and then God met them in their faith and did what they could not do. Are you asking God to fix a problem that he's told you to put your sword to? You know, it's kind of like saying, I'm just sitting here to get my heart right. But what you really need to do is get your feet right. See, sometimes we can sit in a place and say, I'm waiting for the Lord to fix me, when the only way He will fix you is if you are moving forward in faith, doing what you already know you're supposed to do. This is what's wrong with the church. We say, hey, come grow with us. Come to us. Come to the center. And Jesus is saying, go. See, in the going... There is a growing. What begins to happen to us is your heart's not right because you're sitting with your arms crossed and angry. But when you drop your arms and you start walking in the direction He told you to go, He will do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. That's not a hard message, saints. That's grace. That is total grace. It turns out that when you can't get it done, if you will just try... He will meet you with heavenly resources. How many of you have got hailstones sitting in your house ready to throw at the enemy? Anybody in here got such large hailstones that people would be scared of them? I mean, at best in my house, we could throw some crushed ice at you. But God had armaments in the heavens waiting for obedience on the earth. And when obedience happened on the earth, the armament of heaven came in. Are you waiting on God to move when He is waiting on you to move? See, I believe that one of the things that does not surprise the enemy is when we sit back and wait on God. We proclaim our trust in God. When we sit back and say, we love the Lord and the Lord can do it if He wants it done. But I think it surprises the enemy when we don't wait because we already believe He has spoken on the subject. Did you know that the church is supposed to render God's judgments on the earth? That every Levitical priest was supposed to give God's judgment to people in matters of dispute? That's our job. How can we sit back and say we seek Him when He's already revealed His will? I tell you what, you sit back and seek Him and I will run you over while I'm doing what He already told me to do. 
On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, I want you to get this, this bold, amazing, one time in human history prayer. He didn't pray it in a closet. He didn't go hide under a rock. He prayed it in the presence of Israel. O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Ai-Jalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped. When a man prayed, the solar system froze. The only time in human history that everything stood still, do you know why? Because they were surprisingly obedient. They were going all out with the very purpose of time, which was to get God's will done on the whole earth. They were protecting the weak. They were upholding the name of God. They were doing His work. How many of you are sad about how you have spent your time? Do you need time to stand still so that you can catch up? Well, how about you find some surprising obedience and then see what heaven does for you? How many kings did Joshua face? You know, to face five kings and be a new nation yourself and a nation that every single person died in that was older than 20 when you came out of Egypt, a nation that basically had just started over with a recircumcision at Gilgal, a nation that really was just beginning its military campaign, uh, a nation that, for all intents and purposes, was nomadic. It's a big deal to take on five kings, don't you think? Have you ever wondered why these five kings and why they keep getting listed? Look at this. Then Joshua returned with all Israel to the camp at Gilgal. Now the five kings had fled and hid in the cave at Makeda. When Joshua was, was told the five kings had been found hiding in the cave at Makeda, he said, roll large rocks up to the mouth of the cave and post some men there to guard it. But don't stop. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear and don't let them reach their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. If you were Joshua, what would you do with those five kings? I would have said kill them where they stand. But he didn't. He left five enemies of God, enemies of God's people, and he pinned them in a specific place for a certain reason. Have you ever thought that some of the things that you struggle with, God could just wash away so easily? I mean, when I was born again, there were some areas of my life that were sanctified immediately. I never struggled with it again. And there are other areas that I still struggle with to this day, this hour even. Why is that? Why do you fight with some things and other things got washed away immediately? Joshua wanted these five kings preserved. Look at verse 20. So Joshua and the Israelites destroyed them completely, almost to a man. But the few who were left reached their fortified cities. The whole army then returned safely to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. And no one uttered a word against the Israelites. Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me. So they brought the five kings out of the cave. The kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. When they had brought these kings to Joshua, he summoned all the men. Say that with me. All the men. Now which men are these? These are the best fighting men and the rest of those guys. 
These are the guys in the front of the pack, and these are also those that others might think are losers or stragglers, the weak, those who didn't do so good. Joshua said, bring all the men of Israel and said to the army commanders who had come with him, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came forward and placed their feet on the necks of the kings. It turns out that Joshua was the kind of commander that wanted every single Israelite in battle with him, whether they were weak or strong. It turns out that Joshua wanted to preserve those five kings until the weakest of his soldiers realized they could put their foot on the neck of the enemy. How full of excuses are you about your life? Well, I just can't do this. I mean, see, the the thing is, Pastor, what you don't understand is when I was little, this happened, and so I can't. The thing is, what you don't understand is I've got a disability I hadn't told you about. The thing is, Pastor, what you don't understand is I am the exception I cannot achieve. Ah, who's he talking about? All of you. Talking about each one of you. When we find something that is difficult, something that has whipped us many times, when we're rebounding off of I, and now we have to face another battle, what's not surprising is that we don't feel like we can do it. What is surprising is that Joshua said, even the weak ones, even the ones that haven't been doing well, if you will just stay in step with me, I will show you how to put your foot on the neck of the enemy. Come on, church, that's good news. Now let's take these kings quickly. The king of Jerusalem. Y'all recognize that name, huh? Jerusalem. The root word for Jerusalem is city of peace. Is Jerusalem supposed to belong to the people of God? Then Hebron. Hebron is where David was anointed king. Is that supposed to belong to the people of God? It means community or fellowship. After Hebron came Jarmuth. Jarmuth is probably less familiar to you, but it means height or elevation. After Jarmuth, next king was Lachish. Lachish means invincible. After Lachish, fifth king was Eglon. I'll come back and tell you what Eglon means in a minute. Why did Joshua want the foot of every single Israelite on the necks of these kings? Do you think that it's possible that God wanted you to know that the enemy had tried to steal your peace, but you had your foot on his neck? If you will simply march with Joshua, nobody can take your right order with God. Do you understand that? He said, well, the thing is, is I'm greatly disturbed because so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that, and it's really just, it's messing with my mellow, you know? The thing is, is if you're in right order with God, nobody can steal that from you. 
This is why Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. I don't give as the world gives. You know, we sing the songs about the world can't take it away, but then we let them take it away. Peace in Hebrew is not an absence of hostility. The word salem, which is similar to shalom, means that you are doing what God said and therefore you're in harmony with him. Who can take that away from you? Did they take it away from Joseph when they threw him in a hole? Did they take it away from Joseph when they threw him in a prison? Did they take it away from Joseph when the baker forgot, or the baker was killed, the wine bearer forgot about him? You can't take it away. He was right with God all the way through it. How well did that serve him? Tonight, I hope you'll put your foot on the neck of whatever is stealing your peace. Why Hebron? Has the devil told you that you cannot have community? You cannot fellowship? If not with everybody in here, you certainly can't fellowship with at least one or two of those guys. No, it was the entire army, the weak and the strong, and they went out together. Have you ever wondered why husbands and wives sometimes fight so bitterly when there is uh, spiritual things at hand? Because if you can't get along with your own spouse, who can you get along with? That's why. He's trying to convince you that you cannot be in fellowship. Saints, the king of kings led an all-night march through six feasts to give you fellowship with God and man. The book of 1 John said, We write these things to you that you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father. I want you to know, I have fellowship with the Father. Most of my preaching and teaching is so that you will have fellowship with the Father. The burden is not upon the church to chase you down and see if we can make you get into right fellowship with God. The burden is upon you to look and see the presence of God in this place and say, I want to put into practice the things they teach so that I can have what they have. And you can. He put his foot on the neck of Hebron, regaining your fellowship. Height and elevation in Jarmuth. This speaks to your calling. How many of you have begun to believe that you can no longer do the things that God told you at one point you would do? You've messed it up too bad. See, the thing is, is you zigged when you should have zagged. You took a right turn when you should have taken a left. And now, all that's left is misery. It's not true. The king of kings didn't just put his foot on Jarmuth. He waits for you to put your foot on Jarmuth. Is it time to reclaim your calling tonight? Have you let it go? Have you said, well, I know the Lord will do it one day if he wants it done, when he's telling you to do it right now? How about Lachish? Has the enemy tried to steal your strength? See, when you're full of God's spirit, when you're doing what he told you to do, you're invincible. You know, I don't have any problem going to Mexico. It doesn't bother me a bit when they pull out guns because they will bounce off of my forehead if I'm doing what God said to do until the day he gives permission for me to meet my very great desire, which is to go be with him. I have no fear. Are you afraid? Are you so worried about how things will turn out? Are you the exact opposite of invincible? 
Are you so frail and fragile that you're trying to convince the whole world you're too weak to do anything? Jesus Christ put his foot on the neck of that devil. And he's telling you tonight, you can put your foot on the neck. Fear is an enemy of faith. When you express fear, you are expressing directly rebellion towards God. Let's, let's just not mince words about this. When you talk about all that you're scared of and what you're worried will happen, you are saying, God, I do not trust you. If you are so foolish as to put it on Facebook where I have to read it, you're recording it for all of human history to see. That stuff doesn't go away. And even if you delete it, somebody saw it. And that is your testimony now. That is not a good use of time. I believe that God wants you to be invincible. You know, when we're in India, there are times in which we cannot speak the language. <laughs> I've tried. I've spoken in other tongues and asked God to let them understand it. It didn't work. When they speak, it's as if they're speaking in other tongues. Tamil is an incredible language. In most countries that I go to, I can at least order the things I want to eat. There, I, I can't. And the thing is about it, in India, one of the ways that you can communicate the gospel, it's really kind of a silly thing. Like, you'll have a picture of, this is for lack of time, uh, a beautiful person. And what you do with this person is, yeah, I know, he's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It's a self-portrait. What you do with this person is you put it on a felt board, right? And everybody knows it's a person because it's drawn better. I should have had Jennifer draw it. And then you do something like put a peacock right here, okay? So you have to pretend that's a peacock because I'm not going to draw a peacock. And then you, you have a, a snake. That looks a little bit like a snake, right? And you have the snake right there. And then you do something like a wolf, right? When I think of snake, do you think of a good thing? You might think of sin. When you think of a peacock, what do you think of? pride and uh if we do a wolf it might be cunning and you you begin to put all these things here right and then you draw his heart they understand it even without words that man's heart has pride has cunning has sin has all those things in it and then you take a picture of jesus the uh, uh 23rd psalm shepherd which is probably the only thing they've ever seen in their language and you put it here and it washes all that out of their heart and they get the picture when Jesus comes in your heart, it washes all that out. You following me so far? It turns out that every animal is associated with certain things. Eglon means young bull. Symbolizes confidence. There is nothing more confident in this world than a young bull. Did the enemy steal your confidence? The reason I went through the things that I did about time is not just because time stood still for Joshua. It's not just because I want you to know the feast. It's not just because I want you to know that time is short. You can regain your confidence in a second. And it turns out that when you have confidence in the Lord, you feel invincible. Your calling becomes a reality again. You restore fellowship and you're in right order with God. It turns out that Eglon was the linchpin that stole all of the others. Do you want to lead your home? Do you want to lead ministry? Do you want to get things right? 
We have to do whatever it takes to restore our confidence that God is with us. And you only have so much time to do it, but it can be done in an instant. If you knew that the trumpet was going to blow in a few seconds, what would you do? Would that trumpet blowing announce that you were about to be declared right with God to the world? Or would the trumpet blowing catch you in a position where you had no confidence that you were right with God or had completed your work? You know, pity, depression, molly grubs, it's a terrible use of your time. My heart's desire for you is that you'd be filled with confidence that God is for you when you're with Him. That when He's with you, you're invincible, highly called, an essential member of the community and fellowship. And we're creating a sense of shalom and a city of peace. Do you want that or is it only me? You know, all that it requires is for you to be brave enough to believe that if you'll march through the night, heaven will meet you with whatever it takes to get it done. That's all that it requires. You can walk out of here just like you walked in. You can be so committed to a sinful position, so steeped in your pride, that no amount of encouragement will jar you loose. But in the end, it will only have wasted your time and God's. The rest of us are going to move on with God. We want the entire army on the field. Could you all stand to your feet? I want to read you the last verse. I want you to let it wash over your soul. This is Joshua 10 and verse 25. Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. It doesn't matter what enemy faces you. It doesn't matter how long you've lost. It doesn't matter how many there are. When you are faithful... The Lord God will answer you from heaven and He will cause you to have victory over all enemies. Not some, not a few, not all but your biggest, all. Every one of them. And if it has taken longer than you want, perhaps He is just building a testimony so that the rest of the army will be there when you beat it. So they know they can too. Church, this is a time when we can get right. This is a time when we can unify. This is a time when you can be defined by what you do now instead of what you did an hour ago or yesterday.